If you're a first time here, this series we began uh, three, two weeks ago talking about forgiveness. Uh, the heart of the gospel is forgiveness, and we began with our own heart and its problems. And then last week we looked at God's heart, and so today we're moving on to begin to look at the application of both of those truths about us and about Him. Have you ever thought about that line in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors? There are a number of ways to look at that. One is, Lord, forgive us as we forgive others. So it's sort of a conditional uh, forgiveness. Another way to look at it is that as we forgive or as he forgives us, we then are to forgive others. And it's about all of that we talk today. Uh, in Matthew chapter 16 is a very familiar text. I'd like to uh, study it with you this morning as we look about at the application of forgiveness. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Clara Barton worked before most women did outside of the home. She was an educator. She was a lecturer, a nurse an administrator, and a humanitarian. Perhaps her greatest accomplishment was beginning the American Red Cross when she was 61 years old. Near her death, a woman, a friend, came to her, and they were talking, and the friend said, Clara, do you remember when that woman tried to destroy your reputation? And she began to detail what the woman had did, done. And Clara just looked at her blankly, and finally the woman said, Don't you remember what she did? And Clara said, No, I distinctly remember forgetting it. Three years ago in April, one week before my father died, I was sitting with him. He was actually in a chair, which was interesting because for the last few weeks before he went to be with the Lord, he was almost comatose. The tumor in his skull had pressed against a portion of his brain that controlled his swallowing. Uh, he couldn't speak much at all. In fact, for days he didn't say anything. He really couldn't hear very well. In fact, we thought he was completely deaf. But I'll never forget it. We're sitting there in his rehab room, and he was in the chair. I was sitting right face-to-face -face with him. Next to me was my mother, and she asked the question she had been asking for weeks. She said, I wonder what he's thinking. 
Now, I had heard her ask that question I, probably a hundred times. And instead of answering her for the hundred and first time, I yelled at my father, Dad, what are you thinking? And within a few seconds, he said, I'm thinking about today, tomorrow, and eternity. I looked at my mother. Did you get your answer? About two minutes later, he continued. I'm thinking about how God might use me for his kingdom. And by this time, my mother was crying. And I was getting close. And then he said the last thing I ever heard my dad say. Nothing negative. It's all positive. It's a win-win. Now, he was talking about his death. I mean, whether he lived or whether he died, he knew he was in Christ and he was cool. Win-win. But he also knew something else about a win-win. Something that Jesus tells his disciples 25 miles north of the region of Galilee. This is as far north as he ever takes them. To a Gentile region where he talks to them about the ultimate win-win in this life. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the place. Look at verse 13. When Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, the chapter earlier, 15, they have gone north, west, to the coasts of the Mediterranean. There, they're in Tyre and Sidon, those towns. At that point, they're about 15 to 20 miles north of Galilee on the seacoast. But now, Matthew says that they've moved inland about 30 miles, and they're 25 miles north of Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee. And it's interesting. They come to this place that is largely populated by non-Jewish people. In fact, few Jews live there. It's a mountainous area. And it is a place known for religious pluralism. Kind of a melting pot of religious ideas. And so, for instance, the Jews believe that the Jordan River started in a cave in Caesarea Philippi. So they venerated this place. At the same time, Herod the Great, under the auspices of Rome, built a large white marble cathedral to Caesar. Proclaiming that Caesar alone is God. In addition, the Greeks had built a number of temples to their multiplicity of gods. So you were in a place in Caesarea Philippi where there is a religious melting pot. There are people worshiping all kinds of gods. Even the Jews, in some fashion, venerate the Jordan River. And so you've got some Jews 
and a whole lot of Romans and a whole lot of Greeks doing all kinds of religious worship in this place of syncretism, Jesus comes there to ask them a question, who do men say that I am? Second, notice the person. Look at verse 16. Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's the definition of Christ there. It is the Messiah, the anointed one. But you know, because we've read the text, and you've probably read it hundreds of times, or at least heard it, this is Jesus' second question. The first question he asks is, who do people say that I am? And the answer he receives from the disciples is, some say, you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah. Now, many of us pass right over that, but I want to spend just a couple of minutes on this. Many rabbis taught that John the Baptist was so great that he would be resurrected from the dead. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples, no man born of woman is greater than John the Baptist. So some rabbis said, John the Baptist was so great, he's going to one day be resurrected. And many thought Jesus was him. The rabbis taught universally that the prince of the prophets was Elijah. And Malachi tells us that one who is as Elijah will come as a forerunner to the Messiah. So many were saying he's Elijah. Others said, no, he's Jeremiah. Now it's interesting. A number of rabbis taught that Jeremiah, before the destruction of the nation of Israel, before the Babylonian captivity, God told Jeremiah to get the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense and hide it in a cave somewhere. And they believed that Jeremiah would come back, recover those implements, the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense, recover it, bring it back into a prominent place in Israel, and then the Messiah would come. So I want you to know that when the disciples say, some say you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, they're not just randomly guessing. They're believing that Jesus is among the greatest of heroes. He is top shelf. He is a forerunner to the Messiah. But Jesus isn't satisfied with those answers. He says to his disciples, Who do you say that I am? You know, there's an old Irish legend about a king who dressed in a disguise and he went to one of his friend's banquets. He disguised himself as a pauper, and so when he came into the banquet hall, people looked at him, and immediately the host's servants sat him at the lowest table among the commoners. But after a few minutes of conversation and his lucidity and his erudition, he was a bright man as he talked, people began to look, and, and the nobleman who was in charge of the banquet heard some of what he said, and he moved him to a higher table. This happened two more times. And finally, he's seated at the head table. And people are listening to this king in disguise. And a man finally says, Sir, you speak like a king. If you're not a king, you deserve to be. And with that, the king took off his disguise. Now, that's exactly what Jesus is doing here with one major exception. 
when Peter says to him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's not Peter who figures it out. It's not Peter who discerns his identity. Many commentators, I think, blow it at this point. They want to credit Peter with a discovery when in reality, according to Jesus, it's not Peter's wisdom, it's the revelation of of Jesus' Father in heaven who says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's not Peter. It's the Father. And then third, notice the pronouncement. Look at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, for centuries, people have argued over what Jesus means when he says earlier to Peter, you are the rock, you are Petros, or Petra, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know the Roman church says that what Jesus is saying is, Peter, you are the rock. And yet Jesus doesn't say that. In Greek, he says, you are Petros, masculine for Peter. And upon this Petra, feminine, I will build my church. In other words, what he's saying is, you are now no longer Simon, but you are a rock. The reason Jesus says that is because throughout the Old Testament, God, the Father, was called the rock. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, the Bible says, For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, and all his ways are just. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, says, There is no rock like our God. In 2 Samuel 22, David sings, The Lord is my rock. Who is a rock except our God? In fact, to call someone a rock presupposed that the rock, God, was inspiring them. So what Jesus means when he calls Peter a rock is, what? Some say what Jesus means is, Peter's... Faith is so great that he now calls him a rock. The problem with that is Peter's faith is pretty weak because within a matter of minutes, he'll call him Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. So he's a rock and he's Satan. St. Augustine was very helpful at this point. He said, it's not about Peter or his faith that matters. That's not why Jesus calls him a rock. But what Jesus is saying when he says, you are Petros, and upon this Petra, I'll build my church, what Jesus is talking about is himself. Augustine said that, Everything that Jesus does here is an extension of what his father did at the Jordan River. Remember the father, when Jesus is baptized, he comes up out of the water and the heavens open and the Lord God Almighty says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. God the father identifies him as a son. 
his son. Now, Jesus is identifying himself through the revelation of his father, not just as a son of God, but now the Messiah. And while Peter may be a stone in the building of Christ's church, Jesus is the cornerstone. And look what the cornerstone says. He says to his disciples, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Meaning what? Meaning I am the king of the kingdom of heaven and I will give you all of the power and all of the responsibility that I myself possess. You will do what I've done by my power. Remember when those four friends brought that paralytic to Jesus? They open up the roof because the crowd's so great. You've got the religious people in the house. You've got others in the house. You've got people surrounding the house. They can't get their friend who's on a mat to Jesus. So they go up on the roof and they pull off the tile and they lower him in by four ropes. The Bible says when he gets to Jesus' feet, lying there on the mat, Jesus looks at him and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And all at once the religious crowd goes, Who can forgive sin but God alone? He just has pronounced forgiveness. Who can do that but God alone? And that's the point. The answer is no one can do it but God alone. So think of this. Before Jesus says to the man, rise and walk. Before he, the man is able to lift up his mat, Jesus lifts his burden from him. Before Jesus attends to his paralyzed body, he attends to his paralyzed soul. Before Jesus mends his body, Jesus mends his heart. And by doing that, what Jesus is showing these religious people and those friends on the roof and the crowd around and that man on his mat, what he's showing them is the heart of God. God is turning the key. He's loosing the man. He's freeing him. How is he doing it? By doing what God alone can do, and that's to forgive. That's what Jesus is talking about here in Caesarea Philippi. In the wake of his announcement of his own identity, Jesus says to these disciples, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever sins you retain will be retained. And whatever sin you forgive will be forgiven. Why? Why? Because Jesus knows that's why he's come. To save people from their sins. What is it that sin does in our lives? It binds us. It wraps us up. It makes us die spiritually. And what Jesus is doing is saying to his disciples, I'm giving you the same power to free men and women that I myself possess. Years ago, I read a story from Brennan Manning that I've never been able to forget. It's haunted me. 
and it fits. And I want to tell you the story. Forty years ago when Brennan Manning, a Franciscan priest, was in alcohol rehab in Minnesota, he was there with a man named Max. Now, these two men couldn't have been any more different. Brennan Manning had taken a vow of poverty. This man was a CEO of a major manufacturing company in this country. This man was small in stature, but large in wallet and in ego. So Manning tells a story about the time they're in a group session with about 25 recovering alcoholics or alcoholics, some not recovering. And the therapist's name is Dr. Murphy O'Connor. He's Irish. And so he asks Max to describe his drinking patterns. And Max says, oh, I just have a martini or a Bloody Mary or two every day. And the more O'Connor drills into him, the more Max squirms and he hedges. So finally, O'Connor picks up a phone 40 years ago, picks up a phone, dials the number a thousand miles away to a neighborhood bar. He's done the research. And he says, this is Dr. O'Connor, and he describes his office. He says, I'm here in a group session talking to the bartender. He says, I have a signed affidavit from Max that I can ask you questions about his drinking. Can you tell me what are his drinking patterns? The guy gulps and says, Oh, Max, he's a great guy. He's in here every day. He drops about 30 or 40 bucks. As soon as he finishes that statement, before he catches his next breath, Manning says Max gets to his feet in an incredible display of arrogance, and he explodes. He jumps up. He unleashes a mile-long expletive tirade. And then Manning says, As soon as he finishes, within a few seconds, he shows an incredible display of hubris by regaining his composure and launching into an extemporaneous tirade on how one should be justified in his anger. And when he finishes, he sits down. And another guy in the group named Fred says to him, Max... Have you ever done anything that you're ashamed of with respect to your kids? Max says, nope. I have a great relationship with my three, four boys. We go fishing all the time. They love me. I love them. And then Fred said, I didn't ask you that. I said, is there ever a time, and every father, this is true, is there anything you ever regret doing or saying to your kids? And Max says, well, I guess um, I was unkind to my nine-year-old daughter last Christmas Eve. With that, Dr. O'Connor picks up the phone and dials his wife. Said, this is Dr. O'Connor. 
We're in a group session right now, and Max has just told us that he was unkind, a little unkind, to your daughter last Christmas Eve. Can you give us the details? There's a long pause, and then she says, yeah, I think I can tell you the whole thing. It seems like it just happened yesterday. Max took Debbie to a shoe store because she wanted shoes for Christmas. He said, you can have any shoes in the store, and she bought them. When they got back to the car, she reached over to her dad and kissed him on the cheek and said, Daddy, you're the best daddy in the whole world. And Max was so pumped, he decided to celebrate. About a mile from the house, he stopped at the cork and bottle, a tavern that he sometimes frequented. It was a clear day. It was cold, about 12 degrees. So he left the engine running and he locked the doors and he said, Honey, I'll be right back. It was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Suddenly there's silence. And she's sobbing. And then she says... When he comes out of the bar, it's midnight. The engine stopped running a long time ago. The windows are frozen shut. When we got Debbie to the hospital, the doctor had to amputate her right thumb and her right index finger. And her ears were so frozen, she'll never hear again. And Manning said, I looked over at Max. And he appeared to be having a coronary. He struggled to his feet in jerky, uncontrolled movements. Then suddenly his glasses flew off to the right and his pipe went to the left. And he collapsed on the floor, sobbing hysterically. And with that, O'Connor said to us, let's split. All 24 of us got up. We walked silently up the steps. And then from the railing, Above that room, we watched. Max was on all fours, sobbing hysterically. O'Connor came up to him, and he said, Manning said, I'll never forget this. O'Connor came up to him with his foot, and he pushed him over. And when Max falls onto his back, Max catches the eyes of Dr. O'Connor, and O'Connor screams at him, You unspeakable slime. There's a door to the right, and there's a a window to the left. Get out of here as fast as you can before I throw up. I'm not running a rehab for liars. And then Manning said, and he knows from experience, in order for the captive to be freed, He must name his captivity. For Max, at this moment, there were three options. Eventual insanity, premature death, or sobriety through forgiveness. And later that day, Max named his captivity. He pleaded with O'Connor to bring him back into treatment. And when it was granted, I saw Max undergo the most radical change I've ever witnessed in a person. He got honest. He got open. 
He got vulnerable. And he got free. Let me tell you the rest of the story. 45 days later, the day before his release, Fred is walking down the hall and he passes an open door to Max's room. He looks in and Max is sitting there staring at him with with tears streaming down his face. And Max said to Fred, Fred, for the first time in my life, I've just thanked Jesus for bringing me here. And I thank him for freeing me through you and O'Connor and all of these other recovering drunks. See, Max knew that Jesus had freed him because Jesus had used others to do it. Clara Barton knew all about that. So did my dad. You see, when the keys of the kingdom of heaven are employed, it's always a win-win. The forgiver is forgiven and freed. And the one who is forgiven is freed as well. You know something? At the cross, I'm Max. And so are you. Every one of us needs to be loosed. And every one of us who is loosed needs to be in the business of loosing others. That's why he saved you. So that you might be in the business of being used by him to save others. And you do it through forgiveness. So let me ask you. How you doing on that? How you doing with the keys? Think about that as you prepare to come to this table.